Last night, I gave a brief overview of the four foundations of mindfulness as laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta because this is the definition of right mindfulness in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the order that these four foundations are presented in is important because each one supports the development of the next and they develop progressively from very simple aspects of our experience like the body and physical sensations to include increasingly more complex ones, the feeling tone, which we'll be talking about later this afternoon, and then the mind, mental activity, thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, and so on. But we can simplify that uh, that whole um, sequence of the four foundations of mindfulness and begin to practice with it uh, very directly just as you're sitting, as you're walking, as you're going through the day, whenever you happen to notice that you have become disconnected or your mindfulness has disappeared, that moment of recognizing that is a moment of mindfulness. So taking a moment to celebrate that rather than our usual response, which is, oh, I've been lost for weeks or whatever it is. Notice, oh, In that recognition of being lost, the mindfulness has just been restored. And then we can strengthen that restoration of mindfulness by asking three very simple questions. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? And how am I relating to that experience? So those three questions are a kind of a shorthand, simple way of just connecting very directly with the four foundations of mindfulness, very immediately. So that first question, what's happening in the body, very simple. So you can even notice right now what's happening in the body. My hand is writing. My eyes are seeing. There's a little bit of an ache in my back. Very basic. And then the second question, what's happening in the heart-mind, I like to use the word or phrase heart-mind sort of hyphenated because the English word mind, we tend to associate more with the intellect, with the thinking process alone. But in the Buddhist teachings, the culture that they come from, the word citta includes more of what we might think of as the heart also. So it includes emotions and moods and mind states. So this compound term heart-mind, what's happening in the heart-mind, what mental activity, emotions, moods, and mind states are present. So you might notice, oh, a lot of mental agitation, proliferation of thinking, or perhaps a, a mind state of boredom or dullness, or a little bit of a mood of irritation, or perhaps some skillful states, a bit of delight or interest or enthusiasm or appreciation. So just a snapshot, what's happening in the heart-mind right now. And then the last question, the third question, how am I relating to this experience? What's the attitude in the mind about it? So if our experience is somewhat unpleasant, we might notice there's resistance, just this background sense of not liking it. 
or the opposite, if it's something pleasant, we might find a little bit sense of being fascinated by it or being drawn into it, wanting to hold on to it. If it's a little bit more neutral, we might just not notice it. It might not be very clear. But bringing awareness to the attitude to the, of the experience is really important because I think the way I learned mindfulness, and I think this was my own misperception as much as how it was taught, was that I, I thought it was about pinhead focusing on the breath and just keeping my attention there the whole time. And what I didn't realize that there was all this other stuff going on in the background that was actually driving my practice. And often it was some form of aversion or tightness or contraction in the mind. But because I was just paying attention to the breath, I didn't even see what was driving this underlying attitude. So this third question, what's the attitude in the mind or how am I relating to my experience, can show us those colorings in the mind that are kind of filtering or um, creating a tone to our experience that's often somewhat unseen. And this third question, when we ask it, it can often reveal the presence of different uh, mental qualities that actually get in the way of clear seeing. And these are known as the five hindrances, which probably many of you are familiar with, even if you don't know the term, the five hindrances. I'm guessing that you've probably had the very direct experience of them at some stage in the retreat so far. So these are five um, aspects, mental states that the Buddha asked us to be particularly on the lookout for because they get in the way of insight. They get in the way of clear seeing. And these five are desire for sense pleasures, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. So with this first one, the desire for sense pleasure, this really is about any kind of wanting some uh, kind of pleasant experience. So a pleasant sight, sound, smell, taste, physical experiences, and also mental activity, pleasant thoughts and emotions. And on retreat, where we're practicing renunciation to quite a strong degree, there's not too much that we can go after, but sometimes we find um, the food is one area where we can uh, enjoy more sense pleasure. And we might find ourselves just wondering if there's going to be dessert today. And if so, what kind of dessert it might be. And going up to the dining room and finding there is cake and eating a piece of cake and wondering if there's going to be enough for seconds and finding ourselves noticing who's taking pieces of cake even as we're eating the one on our plate we're wanting the one that we haven't yet got so we can just find these little ways that our minds get pulled into sense pleasure and to see that agitation in the mind we're no longer present with our actual experience and so it's a hindrance that gets in the way. Sometimes it shows up in the mind um, because we don't have a lot of physical pleasures that we can get involved with here. Sometimes it shows up in the mind as a lot of fantasizing or imagining or daydream or, or planning or 
sometimes creating imaginary relationships, you know, sometimes what's called the Vipassana romance, which is that whole fantasy that people sometimes go through of picking a partner. I had a friend who said, you know, the start of retreat, she would sit in the dining room and work out which person was going to be her Vipassana romance. And it was several retreats before she realized that perhaps that wasn't the best use of her time. But we all, you know, sometimes we have something similar that we get caught in some way or other and we, this Vipassana romance usually only lasts as long until the silence breaks and we hear the other person speak for the first time and realize that actually they weren't at all who we thought they were. So just, you know, simple examples of the ways our minds get caught and colored and stop seeing clearly by this desire for pleasant physical or mental experiences. And it's important when we do notice any of these hindrances to do our best to notice them without judgment. Otherwise, we're just feeding the second of the hindrances, which is ill will or aversion. And this is an umbrella term for any form of not wanting in the mind. So it includes all forms of anger from the most intense rage right through to just minor frustration or irritation. It also includes all forms of hatred from the most intense loathing through to just minor disliking something. And it also includes all forms of fear from the most intense terror through to just minor anxieties. And this hindrance is usually relatively easy to recognize because it's so unpleasant. And because it's unpleasant, unlike desire, it's a little bit easier to let go of because we can feel very directly how harmful it is. If we don't catch it quickly, though, sometimes the just the unpleasantness of it can drain our energy and then we fall into the third of the hindrances, which is sloth and torpor. And these are old-fashioned words uh, in English for basically sleepiness and dullness. So the kind of heaviness and dullness of the body, kind of stagnant feeling, and in the mind that just dull, drowsy, um, difficult to connect, lack of alertness. So the animal, the sloth, some of you may have seen pictures of it or know of it. It just kind of hangs in trees and doesn't do a lot. A friend of mine who's been to South America and seen them, he said that their fur is actually green because it gets algae in it because they're so literally stagnant. So sometimes we can feel that sense of just ugh, no energy. So this is an imbalance of energy in the form of not enough energy. Sometimes we get off balance in the opposite direction, and that's the hindrance of restlessness and worry, too much energy in the mind. And with this one, sometimes the body feels jumpy, it won't settle, it's twitchy and itchy, and we just want to jump out of our skin physically. And then in the mind, it's that kind of agitated, um, getting caught in proliferations, thought loops, obsessive worrying, and that kind of thing. 
jumping all over the place, getting caught in anxieties about what to do and how to do it and when to do it and if it's right or not, that kind of um, compulsive energy in the mind. And this also can shade over into the last hindrance, which is skeptical doubt. And this is all that sort of doubting and questioning and second-guessing that really undermines our practice, our capacity to practice at all. And it can sound quite seductive sometimes. So this one, probably of all of them, is the hardest to see. It can show up as doubt in the teachings. You know, they're so ancient. How can they be relevant to me now? This is the 21st century. It can show up as doubt in the teachers. Who are these people anyway? They don't look that special. They're just ordinary. What are they doing up there? It can show up as doubt in oneself, in one's own capacity. Well, yeah, maybe millions of people have followed this path for millennia, but I'm uniquely special in my capacity to not do it. So we can find all these different ways that doubt might show up for us. Noticing those little voices in the mind that question, what are we doing here and who do you think you are anyway? And wouldn't it have been better to go on a nice holiday somewhere, warm or cool, depending on the hour of the day, because it's changing so much at the moment. So working skillfully with these hindrances is really a, a key skill in the practice. And just recognizing them is really the first step. Sometimes sometimes just being able to notice, oh, this is just doubt. It's just doubt. Just that clear seeing helps it to release. So rather than getting uh, judging or getting frustrated with ourselves, we want to just gently bring the mind back to our present moment experience in the body. And this is a little bit like training a puppy. Because if you want a puppy to stay on the mat and you invite it to sit, it sits for a few moments and then it runs off. If you whack it and then tell it to sit, it's not going to come back. You know? So we need to be kind to the mind and just gently encourage it. Okay, it was ju- it's just ill will or aversion. It's just sense desire. Let it go. Come back to this moment. And I'd like to um, just share one English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea. He talks about these hindrances in terms of them being manifestations of our humanity. And I like that phrase, manifestations of our humanity, because it just normalizes the truth that all of us are sub- subject to these uh, influences from time to time. And we don't have to take them quite so personally. So sometimes people come into the individual meetings and they'll say, wow, I've just been manifesting so much humanity today. And I think that's helpful because to have a sense of humor rather than, oh, I'm attacked by the hindrances and I'm such a bad meditator, which is where we tend to go when we hear terms like hindrances. So trying to let that go. And just to make the point that the practice a lot is about seeing what gets in the way and learning how to release it. 
So another teacher, a U.S. Dharma teacher, he says, he has a motto, if it's in the way, it is the way. So very powerful to bring attention to what we think is getting in the way and have that become part of our practice. So we have this very common tendency to think of a good sitting as being one where we have a lot of pleasant experiences. And conversely, a bad sitting as being one where we have a lot of unpleasant experiences, such as the hindrances. But actually, when we're sitting with challenging circumstances, then we are really learning how to relate skillfully to them, and our practice can really deepen. So it doesn't matter whether our experience is pleasant or unpleasant. What is important is how we're relating to it, how we're folding it into our practice and bringing clear seeing to it. So as best you can, see if you can let go of that sense of equating pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant with bad meditation and instead look at the relationship to it and see what skillful qualities are being developed. So, not taking the hindrances personally, learning how to recognize them, inviting them to release, and that releasing creates more space in the mind for the skillful qualities to arise. And as I said last night, learning to recognize when the mind is temporarily free of the hindrances, these moments of temporary nibbana that Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about, we start to see them more clearly as the hindrances release. So in this next sitting, I'll give us an opportunity to practice with those three questions. It will mostly be in silence, but perhaps once or or twice through the session, I'll just ring the bell once and invite you to ask those three questions to take a snapshot of your experience in that moment and just to notice and I'll guide you through those questions as we come to them but for now just uh, beginning by settling into a comfortable sitting position again <laughs> 